be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3 today. Get to that in a moment. If you could suddenly and miraculously hear, God-like, you could hear what everyone in the world says about you the moment they say it. How do you think you'd feel? If someone spoke about you to a spouse at the breakfast table, or a, to a coworker at the water cooler, or to God during their prayers, you would hear it as if you were standing in the room with them. How'd you like that? Because human, or to be precise, fallen and falling human nature is what it is, I suspect most of what we would hear would be negative. And not necessarily mean and ugly, but just negative. The deteriorating self, what St. Paul calls the old, corrupted person, loves to share things about people that make it feel better. The new person, Paul's language again, what we've been calling the truer, fuller self, isn't like that. It's not blind to negative traits. I mean, whatever else love is, it isn't blind. It's not blind, but it never uses other people's negative traits to feel better about itself. It doesn't have to. It's not so bankrupt as that. But the old self is bankrupt. So people, neighbors, coworkers, family, friends, enemies, may be saying things about us that we really wouldn't like to hear. Is there anything we could do that would make them change their minds? That would make them ashamed of their negative talk? We're coming to the conclusion of this series we've been calling Closer. So far we've thought about how to get closer to Christ, closer to our truer, fuller selves, and closer to fellow Christ followers. This morning we're going to think about how to get closer to those people who aren't following Jesus. And we realize that getting closer to those people, and some of them are in our own families, may be difficult since they don't know what to make of our commitment to Jesus. Some of them patronize us for our religion, as they think of it, or others ignore us. Some think that we think that we're better than everybody else. So how can we get closer to them in a way that helps them change their minds about us and far more importantly about Jesus? We learned something about that from 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 13 through 16 in just a moment. But I want to remind us that these verses stand within a context and that we must take that context into consideration. If we ignore the context, we'll fall into the mistake of thinking that we can talk people into faith in God, which will certainly leave us disappointed, and worse, make it harder for the people that we know to believe. Talking to people is necessary, but it's not all that's necessary. Words don't come first. In fact, they're the last ingredient to be added to the recipe, not the first. Think about making a pizza. Where do you start? Do you pour the sauce into the pan and then add the dough? Or you start with the mozzarella? No, you'd have a mess nobody would want to eat. And it's the same way here. You don't start with words. Unless your words rest on the foundation of an authentic, lively Christian lifestyle, like the pizza sauce rests on the crust, not the other way around, your words are going to be unappetizing and hard for people to swallow. Our text begins with the end of 1 Peter 2, 
continues through verse 16 of chapter 3, but to get started, we're going to read verses 13 through 16. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what's right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. That is a quote from Isaiah chapter 8. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. That's also from Isaiah chapter 8. Only there, Paul says, sanctify Yahweh, sanctify the Lord. And here he says, he substitutes Christ. Sanctify or set apart in your hearts, Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So how do we get to the point where our non-Christian friends, neighbors, co-workers, family members will rethink their position? Because that's a problem. Many of them haven't thought about their relationship for, with God for a long time. And some have never thought seriously about it at all. They've assumed that people who go to church are weak or stupid or hypocritical. Or more often, they think that religion, as they call it, is for other people, not for them. How do we get them to question their assumptions? How can we help them think? According to Peter, it will not be our brilliant answers, but our good behavior, that's verse 16, that causes people to rethink their assumptions. How will that happen? First, it's important that people understand that we are the way we are because of Christ, because we're on his side. It's not because we're more spiritual or kinder or just plain better than other people. It's because we belong to Jesus Christ. In Greek, the word order here is interesting. Those who speak maliciously against your good in Christ behavior. If we want people to believe in Jesus, they need to see that he's the reason for our behavior. They need to identify us and our conduct with him. Is that how people think of you? When friends or coworkers or acquaintances mention you to someone else, so at the water cooler or wherever, what do they say? They say, you know, that the farmer or whatever, you fill in the blank, the mechanic, the teacher, the banker, the guitar player, the engineer, or, you know, the one who plays golf all the time, or who bakes those great chocolate chip cookies, or who's always talking about her grandchildren. If that's how they identify you in their minds, you've got work to do. You need to fly your flag. It isn't our job to impress people with ourselves, but to introduce them to Christ. All right, what is this good in Christ behavior that Peter's talking about? What does he have in mind? Well, to answer that, we have to look at that larger context. And we're going to find four things that cause people to ask the question, why are you the way you are? Why do you have the hope that you have? So four behaviors that will change people's thinking about us, but more importantly about Christ. The first of these attention-grabbing, assumption-changing behaviors we find near the end of chapter 2, and it is the refusal to retaliate. Because of Christ, we refuse to play tit-for-tat. When people insult us, we what? 
we do what Jesus did. We bless them. That behavior is so foreign to people's experience. It's so countercultural that it will cause people to rethink their assumptions about Christ. When somebody does something against you, when you treat them well, when they speak against you and you bless them, you're going to freak them out. And they're going to wonder why you're doing that. That's the first of those good in Christ behaviors that Peter has in mind when he gets to verse 16. A second century document written by a man named Athenagoras says of Christians, so this is back in the second century, they show love to all men, and all men persecute them. Yet they repay curses with blessings and abuse with courtesy. You know what? That got people's attention in the second century. And it will get people's attention now, if we'll dare to do it. If we just take Jesus at his word and bless those who curse us. All right, a second way to get people to ask us about our hope. Make sure your relationships are healthy. And if you're married, that starts with your spouse. Great marriages are countercultural. They are the exception. They're not the rule. When people see one, they notice it. Peter draws out three things that constitute good in Christ behavior in a marriage. One thing about wives, two things about husbands. First, wives are submissive to their husbands. Now, be careful not to read into this a 21st century American concept of submission, which puts submission on a par with slavery. In our thinking, the submissive person is weak and scared. It's the person who gets pushed around by everybody, who has no backbone. That is not what Peter's talking about. In fact, he would be offended by that idea. The Bible calls all Christ followers to submission. All of us, not just wives. Both men and women are to practice it. The submissive person is anything but weak. He or she is strong enough to stand under another person and hold him up. The submissive person is like a boulder on which someone can stand and take their stand. It's not like a pebble in somebody's shoe. The kind of submission that Peter's talking about ought to characterize all of us. But it's especially evident in the relationship between wives and husbands. What's the first thing you notice about a submissive wife? She's on her husband's side. She's for him. Submission does not mean that a wife has no say in their marriage relationship, no say in their finances, no say in decisions. It doesn't mean that she's a dimwit who depends on her husband to do all the thinking. It doesn't mean that she's the slave of her husband's whims. Remember, Scripture commands all of us to submit to each other and certainly doesn't see that as slavery to each other's whims. For a wife, submission means that she supports her husband. She's on his side. She holds him up. Now, Peter mentions two traits that characterize the Christian husband. First, he knows his wife. At least he's getting to know her. He wants to know her what she thinks and what she likes and what she desires. The Greek behind the NIV translation, be considerate as you live with your wives, is literally live together according to knowledge. Husbands, know your wives. The husband who's getting to know Christ is also getting to know his wife. He wants to know her. Secondly, he respects his wife. That's verse 7. 
Greek something like he places high value on her. He treats her as a person of high standing and great importance. She is the mighty God's daughter and heir. What she thinks matters, matters to her husband. He listens to her. Now, watch some TV sitcom and see if that's how married couples are portrayed. My guess is that you'll find exactly the opposite. Women treat their husbands like fools, and the men don't know their wives at all, and they don't want to. But that's not just TV. That's real life. That's your neighbor's life and your co-worker's life. If they see something different in our relationships, if they see respect and friendship and love, they're going to wonder why. And they may even ask, verse 15, for the reason you are the way you are. Okay? Third, good in Christ's behavior. It's found in verse 8. If you want to stimulate interest in God among your non-Christian friends and family, it's imperative that you have good relationships with your Christian friends and family, the church. Finally, all of you, verse 8, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. People want relationships like that, even if they say otherwise. Even if they say they don't need or want anybody. They say that kind of thing because they've been hurt. But it's in our makeup to want friends and to be a friend. If you invite someone to church and they see that your church friends are your dear friends, not just on Sundays, but all week long, it'll make them rethink what they think they know about God. Last week we talked about order of operations, and we see that here again. If you want to get closer to people outside the church, make sure you're getting closer to people inside the church. Your relationships with church people will make a real difference in how non-church people think about Christians and about Christ. Let me give you an illustration of how this works. You're watching some movie or TV show, and it's about this dad who's searching far and wide for his wayward daughter who's caused him so much heartache. And he at last finds her. So this is the key scene. And when he finds her, he puts his arms around her and he tells her that he loves her. Now, you will hear his words in very different ways depending on the musical score that's playing at that moment. You probably won't even notice it. But it'll determine what you think of what's happening on the screen. If the cellos and bass violas are playing the swelling bass line while the violins soar, tears will come to your eyes. If there's a discordant, chaotic music in the background, you won't know what to think about what you see happening. You won't know whether to believe it or not. But if there's no music at all, your emotional investment will be minimal. Our relationships with fellow church members provides the musical score to the message that we tell other people about Christ. If our church relationships are rich, they'll impact other people with our words. If our relationships are discordant, people won't know what to think about what we say. And if there's no background music because there are no relationships, people are not going to invest emotionally at all. Okay, now, the fourth of the good in Christ's behaviors. This one is so powerful. It will make people reconsider everything they thought they knew about Christianity. 
It's found in verse 14. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. A literal translation runs like this. Do not fear their fear. Or allow yourself to get stirred up. The fundamental human emotion since the fall of Adam has been fear. Remember Adam's first words after his rebellion? I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. Fear has been humanity's constant companion ever since. The old person, St. Paul's terminology, remember? What I've been calling the, the deteriorating self. The old person is a patchwork of fears. That old self is afraid of dying and is afraid of living. It's afraid of making a mistake and afraid of doing nothing. We're afraid of immigrants, indigents, disease, shame. We're afraid of loud noises. We're even more afraid of being quiet. We're afraid of snow. We're afraid of storms. We're afraid of being stranded by our old car. And I think most of all today, people are afraid of being somewhere without their cell phone. Advertisers, spin doctors, and politicians they constantly play on our fears. The world is afraid. But the Christ follower is not to fear what they fear. What? Not fear being a fashion pariah? No. Not fear running out of money during retirement? No. Not fear losing your job? No. Not fear being an outsider, not fear being lonely, not fear looking old, not fear conflict, not fear death. No, no, no. Do not fear what they fear. The next word, the one the NIV translates, 84 anyways, translates as frightened, is literally stirred up. Don't let all these things stir you up. Or we might say, don't let them get you worked up. The picture is of a kettle that's on the boil. This is inward turmoil. It's the kind that comes when we forget that God is good and that God is sovereign, that he's in control. This is the word that Jesus used when he said in John 14, 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't get all stirred up. Now, again, we see how important the order of operations are. If we are not moving toward Christ and so moving in the direction of our truer, fuller selves, we'll never overcome our fears. We will fear what everyone else fears because that old deteriorating self picks up fears like a wool coat picks up lint. That old self attracts fear like a magnet attracts iron shavings. But as we become our truer, fuller selves, fear loses its grip on us. And I say become because sometimes the way I picture this sounds like you're moving towards and there you're going to find your true self. But you're going to find your true self because you're becoming your true self as you move toward Christ. When people out there encounter fearlessness, they notice it. Now, you, you don't have to be tough, some big tough guy to overcome fear. You don't have to be strong. You don't have to be full of self-confidence. But you do have to be moving towards Jesus. It's possible and many people have achieved it, to face poverty, rejection, old age, conflict, even death, without letting fear take control of us. It's possible, but it will never happen without Jesus. When we don't fear what everyone else fears, 
people, at least some of them, are going to want to know why. Why are you like that? What's the reason for your hope? That's when we use words. We tell people with gentleness and respect what we know about God. We tell them about Jesus, who died and was raised to life. We do this with gentleness, not harshness, and we do it with respect. See, we're not trying to make a sale or push people into something they don't want to do. We respect the fact they have their own beliefs and feelings. We know that their response is up to them. It's not up to us. And we know that God was present and working in them before we ever arrived on the scene, and he'll be there and working in them long after we're gone. It's not all up to us. If we treat people that way, they might not respond with faith, but they might change the way they talk about us and about our Lord. They might be ashamed, that's Peter's word, to speak against us because other people will know it's not true because they've seen our good in Christ's behavior. All right, so let me wrap this up. If you want to move closer to non-Christians, family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, in a way that will give Christ a fair hearing, Peter outlines four things to do. First, absolutely refuse to retaliate against people who mistreat you or speak evil against you. That includes the rage and flame drivers on the road, people at work, people at church, even members of your own family. When we're mistreated, we do what Jesus did. We entrust ourselves to him who judges justly, but we don't come back at them in anger. That's the first thing. Secondly, we improve our family relationships. And if we're married, especially our relationships with spouses. Don't have a marriage like your coworkers or a marriage like your friends' marriages. Have a better one. And that means take steps to make it better. And you can start now. If you don't know what the, the next step is, ask your spouse. But first, ask your Lord. Then, Seek better, deeper relationships with other church members. If there's discord between you and someone else, talk to the Lord about it and then try to fix it. Don't just let it go on. Think about how you can be a blessing to other people in the fellowship. Make it your goal to bless someone every time you're here on Sundays and to bless at least one person from the fellowship during the week. And then finally, face your fears. When fear comes in, and it does, it does because that old self attracts it. When fear comes in, first face your Lord and then face your fears. And choose to trust God despite what's going on in your life. And, and by the way, sometimes you'll have your, the fight of your life doing this. You will say no to that fear and it will be back before you can blink. And it'll be back again after that. So you're going to have to do this and keep doing it. Ask the Lord to take the very things that you're afraid of and turn them into areas where the reality of his life and strength shines through. God wants, see, this is what God wants to do with your fears. So you say, oh, God knows I have fears? Yeah, he knows all about it. He wants to use your fears to build a platform from which he can demonstrate his faithfulness and his love to you and to other people. So when fear comes, don't just distract yourself from your fears. That's how everybody else deals with it. Don't you do that. Face those fears. Give them and yourselves to God 
and then overcome them with his help. And you might need our help too, because that's how it works. Do these things and you will get the opportunity to speak to others about your hope. Preach the gospel at all times, said St. Francis. If necessary, use words. And it will be necessary if you're doing these things. But use those words gently and with respect. Remember, you don't have to convince people. Jesus is not a product you're selling. He's the leader you're obeying. So tell him your story. How you're moving closer to Christ. To your truer, fuller self. To your fellow Christ followers and to others. And when that really is your story, God will use it. And other people will be helped. All right, let's pray. Lord, you've surrounded us with people who need you. But aren't going to find you just because we or someone else says the right words to them. So I'm praying that you'll help us live the right life. That you'll help us in these four areas we've talked about this morning. Lord, you know how far we have fallen short of these things. But by your grace, as we move closer to you, please change that. Lord, I pray that we might among ourselves have the kind of relationships, kind of honesty and authentic community that causes other people to know that the Father sent you. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus.